Hello everyone and welcome to the Constructed Criticism Network. This network is here to help you improve in Magic the Gathering at every level. From popper leagues to top 1000 mythic, we've got you covered. If you want to hear the entire network, head on over to our sponsor at puremtgo.com where you can hear each and every show, each and every week, and check out their sponsor, MDGO Traders, and tell them that the CCMTG Network sent you. Now sit back, enjoy the show, from YouTube, podcasts, and more, here's this week's episode from ConstructedCriticism.com. How's it going, everybody? It is Thursday afternoon, July the 2nd, 2020, about 6.20 p.m. time of recording, and it is time for this, the 77th trip down the homeward path. My name is Adam. I'm a husband, father of three, and work wasn't quite so bad this week. We got we got the Friday off. Nice change of pace. Still got my 40 hours in, though. But, husband, father of three, holding down a full-time job, somehow, some way, we gotta find a way to improve at Magic, especially on a time or financial budget as someone like me has. So, while we were away this week, I've actually been playing a little bit of extra Magic. Shocker, I know, I played uh, one and a half pre-release events. <laughs> uh, thankfully, we're in a small enough section of Tennessee we only had like eight people show up to the two pre-releases I played in if I had gotten there and felt remotely uncomfortable I would have left and gone home but again we had a low enough turnout we had enough people to fire the event but not enough people that anybody really felt uncomfortable most of us were wearing masks the ones that weren't myself included are, are people who have underlying health conditions in which the mask causes problems. Every time I have ever worn a mask, I have ended up overheating and passing out. If I've worn it for more than a few minutes at a time. So, if I'm out in public and I know I'm only going in for a few minutes, I will mask up. But, in the case of a pre-release, when I know I'm going to be there for several hours, it's a little bit of a different animal. I, I do everything in my power to aim everything downwards to not be you know minimize the amount of bloom to my exhales as possible you know even even not masked up we're going to do our best to make sure nobody gets sick from me as an essential worker i've got to do my part because i'm still going back and forth to work but it was fun it was exciting to get to play with new cards It was exhilarating to finally get to play Magic in person again. Excuse me. It was an interesting limited environment, but I am the last person anyone needs to come to for limited advice. I am patently, self-admittedly horrible at limited. And that's only something I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be able to improve by playing more of it. So... Uh, the first one was covered by store credit, and then the second one was also covered by store credit. So, but it was a good time. Uh, no really exciting pulls from my, my seals, except I got the, uh, the showcase frame cultivate. And my promo in the second one was containment priest. So that was pretty cool, but it wasn't anything just outlandish, you know. My friend Lance went to the first one and pulled an Ugin, and his promo was Containment Priest. So it must be nice. Turns out the Mythics are uh, awfully mythic in this course set. Uh, lost entire matches to Baneslayer Angel and Terror of the Peaks, as, as one typically does in Limited. But that's not what I'm here to talk about this week. I am here to talk about Tabout Control. What it is, what it isn't what it's been through over the years that kind of leads us to associate it with a different archetype than a lot of these other control decks that people are playing. And we're going to start by sliding over into the fast lane, and we are going to put a hard definition on what it means to be a tap-out control deck. Because there are some key differences within the various forms of control But tap out kind of occupies its own unique space. 
because first of all, it is definitely a control archetype that wants to use its mana every turn. As and when I say that, I mean it wants to have something to do with its mana every turn, whether it's on your turn or their turn. You want to be using your mana. And that's just good deck building, you know, all that. But typically these control decks are using the early turns to sequence to make sure they hit land drops. Maybe they're interacting a little bit. A light permission suite. Two mana soft counters, things of that nature. Cantrips or raw card draw abilities on the table. Whatever the case may be, these are the, the early turns. You really want to use all your mana for like the first six or seven turns of the game. And then after that, you are looking for ways to use your mana as the game goes longer. You know, you are still very much a control deck. You want the game to be strung out as long as possible, provided you have the advantage in such a long game. <clears throat> but... Uh, compared to some of these other ones which are more comfortable playing more tap lands, which are more comfortable playing off schedule in order to make sure they they hit land drops, in order to make sure they save a counter spell for a key, uh, key permanent you know, what have you tap out control decks are a little bit more slavish to curving out you know you really want your two drop to trade up with their three drop, you want your three drop interactive spell to trade up to their four drop you want your four drop spell to start to try to pull you ahead or catch you up and then you want your five and six and seven to really start to dominate the game it is a deck that seeks to play powerful threats to invalidate weaker ones a really good example is a card like baneslayer angel baneslayer angel if your opponent does not have a removal spell just invalidates any creature with five toughness that doesn't have first strike. If it has five toughness or less and it does not have first strike, Baneslayer Angel makes sure you don't care about it. It's a way to gain uh, these kinds of situations, these kinds of threats where you're playing your things out to the board, you know, making sure you've got powerful. Uh, trump cards, these you know, cards that are just a little bit better than what your opponent can do at the same point in the mana curve. It's very mid-range of the tap-out control deck to, to take this approach, but it's been kind of the tried-and-true formula over the years. Whether it's been Baneslayer Angel, Gideon Jura, Teferi Hero of Dominaria, um, even going way, 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 way back, and it's Mahamodi Gen, just being able to block their uh, Urnum Gen all day long. We're both five sixes, nothing's happening. But my five six flies while yours gets soaked up on the ground because I don't have any forests in my deck. You know, that's the that's the premise behind. The, the tap out decks trump cards the the finishers the 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 mental image that you have of the deck when you're building a tap out control deck needs to feature some number of cards that you feel like will just outclass whatever your opponent has at the same mana cost by necessity by design that's what tap out decks do well then Let's talk a little bit about what they are not. Tap-out control decks are not necessarily decks that don't play any counterspells. I know it sounds counterintuitive because the deck is called tap-out control. But that doesn't mean it always taps out every single turn no matter what. It just means that once it starts building advantages, the way it wants to do that is by tapping out for powerful cards rather than continuing to interact and seeking to double spell the way some of the other control decks do. Which is to say, decks in standard right now, you know, blue-eyed control decks in standard right now, have elements of tap-out control to them. Elspeth Conquer's Death is a powerful trump. 
Dream Trawler is a powerful Trump. You could argue Teferi Time Raveler is a very powerful Trump card. Invalidating entire decks and archetypes. Narset Parter avails is the same way. But then you're still playing cards like Absorb and Dovin's Veto and Neutralize and Negate and Essence Scatter and so on and so forth. Why? Because those cards still do a really good job of making sure you live to cast your powerful spells. And last but not least, tap out control decks, contrary to some of my deck building decisions in the past, are not necessarily just stacks of board wipes with a few threats in them. That's what non-blue control decks are. Now, some of them over the years have occupied this space, but it doesn't mean they all do all the time. So, as we slide over, as we slow things down to take a deep look into the history of this archetype, Tabar Control has a weird history. Because for a very very long time. Early in Magic's history, probably all the way up, honestly, till about the time I really started paying any attention to Standard, and I have gone back, I have looked at it. Tap-out control decks were not a thing. There were builds of decks that would play a sideboard package. Uh, notably, if I if I remember correctly, it was a Zvi Moshewitz deck that was very, very Drago at its core, playing lots of counter spells and cheap removal and uh, cheap instant speed card draw. And the win condition was Millstone in the main deck, but then frequently against mid-range decks, he would actually sideboard into Mahamodi Gen because it was big enough that it invalidated anything smaller than it. And that allowed you to use your counter spells in a different kind of way. It made the game about something else. You could you could bounce a creature, counter it on the way back down, and beat him to death with the gin. It was fundamentally very similar to Brian Weissman's The Deck, in that you wanted to wait until the game was pretty much locked up, and then you would just slam this thing on the table. But Zvi, at the time, made the conscious decision that in some of his matchups, on six mana, there was nothing his opponent could do that was better. So they just, he just jammed the, the Mahamodi gen on the table. It was better than Weissman's coveted Sarah Angels. You know, it was just, it was a big creature. It was bigger than anything else the other people were playing. And there were elements to tap out in classic decks such as the deck, the Brian Weissman control deck. Namely, cards like Wrath of God, cards like... Uh, Sarah Angel, you know, Disrupting Scepter. But unlike... Unlike decks of more modern sensibilities, these tap-out control decks, these these control decks at the time, decks like the deck, like, like Drago Control from Andrew Cunio, so on and so forth, they were more interested in trying to achieve total and utter control of the game. They wanted the opponent out of cards. They wanted to have a handful of cards. They wanted to have enough lands or mana sources in play to be able to cast a threat and protect it before they would start worrying about actively trying to win the game. Well, that all changed around October 2005. And bear in mind, I've been playing Magic for about a year by this time Ravnica City of Guilds had just released and the deck of the the deck of the first round of PTQ's weekend like the deck that did the most damage Mike Flores turned out a masterpiece the deck was called Juicy Blue and this was kind of the first in that theory of, well, if my thing's just better than whatever you can do at that mana cost, I'm just going to play my thing. I'm not going to try to control the game forever. 
you know, I'm, I'm not going to play a really threat light deck. I'm not going to play a deck that barely has a way to win the game, but we're just going to dig until we find it and keep you from doing anything until that happens. No. Flores was interested in playing control for four turns. Sometimes five. But the reasoning behind it, we had cards like Remand, we had Mana Leak, we had Exclude, we had, uh, at the time, uh, Flores ended up playing several black cards splashed into the deck off of Watery Grave and Underground River. Cards like Slay, cards like, uh, you know, removal options, but at its core, what you were doing with this deck is you wanted to play some amount of the time you'd play Juicy Apprentice on turn two. You would leave up interaction on turn three and four. And then you'd just jam Maloku the Clouded Mirror down your opponent's throat on turn five. Because if they didn't kill it, if you got to untap with Maloku, you were going to win. You would play your sixth land, you would attack for two, you would pass the turn. Opponent says, okay, um, play my, play my Loxodon Hierarch, play my, uh, what, you know, threats were not great from the aggressive or mid-range decks at the time. Play my thing out. Well, okay. Uh, does it fly? No? Okay. Instep will bounce, will float two, bounce two lands, uh, make two 1-1 one, one flyers, untap, play land, attack you for four, pass the turn, what you got? Uh, well, we're going to play this other, nah, I, I can't have that. That's another threat. We're going to exclude that. Okay, well, that's cool. You drew a card. Okay, well, now we'll tap two. Bounce two lands, make two one ones, untap, play land, attack you for six. Are you dead yet? No. You're actively seeking to turn the corner like a mid-range deck in these tap-out control decks. Partially because Maloku was such a powerful threat at the time. Evasive, four toughness to live through volcanic hammer and lightning helix. Um just powerful and could flood the board with a million bodies rewarded you for flooding out like few other cards ever have well then on the other hand you had Kega the Tide Star who if it wasn't the best thing in play it would be after it died because it was going to replace itself with whatever the best creature in play was And you got to think at the time, the the aggro decks were playing these like the the aggro decks were playing cards like Loxodon Hierarch, Watchwolf, cards that were smaller than Kega, cards that had trouble punching through a Maloku the Clouded Mirror board state. Especially when backed up by counter magic and a little bit of removal. Cards like cards like Remand and Boomerang were not there to lock the opponent down. They were there to make sure you didn't die long enough to cast your big powerful threats. It ended up going through several iterations. It ended up going through several different people's hands. Until Guild Pact released, we got Steam Vents, and Flores and Guillaume Wafotapa both had similar ideas going into Pro Tour Hawaii, which, as I mentioned in the last episode, was the very first high-level professional event I paid any attention to. Wafotapa had taken the Juicy Blue Shell, had cut the Juicy Apprentices, understandably, and had replaced them with tidings 
and then was playing a Kega Maloku control deck with pyroclasms and shocks and volcanic hammers to control the early aggro decks. And then the ability to sideboard into cards like Giant Solifuge in the control mirror that would just beat your opponent to death. Well, Flores had almost exactly the same idea, except Flores did it with Tron Lance. And in the hands of Asip Lebedowicz, it ended up making a top eight finish at that Pro Tour. And that was my first exposure to Tron decks. Instead of being turn one, Expedition Map, turn two, Sylvan Scrying or Crack Expedition Map, turn three, Tron, seven drop, go. Instead of being the combo deck that Tron is now, or the borderline ramp deck that Tron is now, Tron at that point was a control deck that had a big mana advantage. It was a control deck that played a fun of blaze to uh, a blaze or an invoke the fire mine to either nuke the opponent out of nowhere because the game has gone on for a long time. You've hit a bunch of land drops. You got one set of Tron and a couple of extra pieces and you can just blaze them out of the game for like 10. Or you've got one set of Tron, your board states are fairly even, so you're just going to invoke the fire mind pay blue blue red x and draw five or six cards and that just refills your hand now you're ready to fight the good fight again maybe you found another threat maybe you found a way to remove your opponents you know maybe you uh maybe you boomerang theirs remanded on the way back down and let yours go to work you know you get two shots in with kega that's pretty close in a format with Shocklands and Painlands, that'll get real close to lethal. And then eventually, after the Pro Tour, Flores even went as far as to do a redesign and he called the deck White Wafotapa because he saw Wafo's deck from the, the BT and decided to go through and do a little bit of a redesign on it and built it around a very powerful interaction between Yose the Morning Star and Debtor's Knell. Notably playing a fun of Mirror and the Moaning Well, a technology piece that ended up coming back later. Uh, Mirror and the Moaning Well allowing you to sacrifice a creature to uh, gain life equal to its toughness. Yose says whenever it dies, tap five things. Those five things don't untap during the controller's next untap step. And then Debtor's Knell would just return the Yose to the battlefield at your next upkeep. So you could keep things permanently locked down. You could make sure, you know, you executed a prison lock, but like Yose was still one of the best threats in Standard 2. Because again, it's 5-5 five, five Flying Dragon for 6 that taps down 5 permanents and doesn't let them untap for a turn. Like, That'll do a thing. Wrath of God replaced Pyroclasm as a more unconditional board clear. Uh, genuinely cannot remember. Uh, I guess... I don't remember what the spot removal options were. If I'm not mistaken, Wrath of God was the only actual removal spell in, in that deck. But that all gave way to the summer of 2006. The, to, to put it in perspective, this was an archetype that was iterated upon so much in my first year of Magic, I was unaware that like Drago Control existed. I was under the impression that Control decks wanted to play like these decks did. Counter, bounce, answer, answer, big dumb thing, kill you. I thought that's what control decks did. Summer of 06, Japanese locked themselves in a room, would be my assumption, uh, Katsuhiro Mori and several others. And they showed up to their nationals, several high, high reputation, well-known, well-respected Japanese professionals showed up to Japanese nationals 
with a deck they called Solar Flare. And this was the concept of tap-out control pushed to its absolute limit at the time. Because what they did is they said, well, if these threats are so powerful that they're, they lock up the game by existing on the battlefield, why don't we put them into play early? These were decks that played Signets. If you looked at them by today's deck design standpoint, they almost looked like Commander decks. And I know that sounds weird to say. They were unbelievably light on counter magic playing typically just the four copies of remand but then they were playing cards like compulsive research court hussar to to draw cards to fix cards to make sure everything lined up right you know make sure everything was the way they wanted well if you're playing uh you're playing compulsive research draw three discard two unless you discard a land uh, two and a blue, sorcery. You can do a whole lot worse than compulsive research, discard Kaga on turn three, in addition to discarding some other card that's not good in this matchup. And then on turn four, you just slam a zombify and bring it back. And there was a pretty hefty misconception around the community that that interaction is specifically what the deck was built around. Leading some to call the deck Japanimator because, you know, we're an unimaginative lot when it comes to naming decks. But, again, Yosei, Kega, and Maloku were all the best threats. Getting them out early was a bonus. Either you would Signet on two, Signet plus leave up Remand on three, into turn four Dragon, you know, or you could do the compulsive research into Zombify. But the idea was just to cheat those cards, get those cards into play as soon as possible so that the rest of your game became about making sure your opponent didn't do anything you cared about around that. And the idea behind Tap Out Control is to have Backbreaking trump cards, cards that's, that generate a massive advantage on a dime. And cards like Persecute, uh, two black black, name a color, target player reveals their hand and discards all cards of that color. That's a backbreaker on turn three. Notably, the uh, the other control decks at the time were not playing a lot of counter magic. You know, even like the the people still clinging to Juicy Blue, they would play Remand. They might play Mana Leak, maybe one to two copies of Exclude. Negate was a card that didn't exist yet. There just there weren't a lot of great counter spells. The ones we had were really really good soft counters. But cards like Remand and Mana Leak lose their efficiency really quickly when you're both playing these hit-my-land-drop control decks. So people started cutting back. They went to just Remand in their decks. They went to just one or two spot removal effects. And all of that played into the hands of the, the Solar Flare pilot because Persecute and Wrath of God could just shut down whole decks. Like, Zoo was so board committed at the time, you could Wrath of God them and they would just fold. You know, if you, you accelerate into one of your threats early, tap them down, they're forced to commit extra bodies to the board in order to, to continue applying pressure, and then you just Wrath them and take the four for one. And Yosei taps all their land, so you get an extra turn. You know, it's it's insane. And then over that summer, the deck got, went through several iterations, including by the end of the summer when we got into got into the fall of 06, between uh, Time Spiral and Cold Snap, 
there were several knights introduced and then the, the printing of smallpox and time spiral gave several, including my friend Brett, who did not do research on any deck builds he ever did for the first probably three years we played Magic. Uh, Brett came to the same decision as a lot of the professionals in coming around on the idea of what he called what they called Solar Pox, which was to play Hakon Stromgold Scourge as a, a value discard because you could play it back out of the graveyard. It played nicely with your Court Hussar. It sacrificed real well to your Smallpox. Flagstones of Trocare was a great sacrifice to your Smallpox because you just go get another land. Now, which one was better between Solar Flare and Solar Pox? I really don't know. I genuinely cannot remember much about the way the matchups tended to go. But fall of 06 into the early winter of 07, another deck really came on strong thanks to several printings and some changes in the standard format. Notably, Cold Snap gave us Rune Snag. Uh, Remand is obviously still in standard. It gave us um, Cancel, which was a little embarrassing, but it was still counter-target spell, and that's kind of important. But a version of uh, the deck name is called Angel Fire because Flores loves him some four-drop trump cards. Played Lightning Angel, Lightning Helix. Another powerful top-end trump card in Bogart and Hellkite. Remand, Lightning Helix, Boom and Bust. That was your nucleus because you could boom their land and your flagstones go get another land. Or you could generate, you know, keep everything fairly even, answer what you had to answer, keep the board fairly clear, get your lightning angel out, and then bust and blow up all the lands. And then beat them to death with the lightning angel that you had in play. And that was a that was a deck that was very, very prevalent around here. It was a deck that I had to play against a fair amount and lost to a lot. Because I was still in my combo player phase. I was positive there was a good combo deck that wasn't Dragonstorm and I was going to find it and I was going to break the format. It didn't happen. I just kept losing Angel Fire. But eventually, Tap Out Control as a whole faded from standard because, well, they got Lightning Angel, Boom and Bust, and all that good stuff. The Drago decks got Mystical Teachings, Teferi, Mage of Jalfir, Rune Snag. They still had Mana Leak Reman. They got canceled. They got rewind in the core set. So it turned out you could just build a Drago control deck that literally never tapped mana on its own turn unless it was under the gun. Like, unless it absolutely had to, that deck never tapped mana on its own turn. And its most frequent win condition was a card like Urza's Factory. Okay, you didn't do anything? Cool, I'll pay seven, make a two-two. Untap, attack you for two. Those words, pay seven, make a two-two. That's a little embarrassing. But one of the tried and true met one of the tried and true dynamics of control deck matchups drago decks eviscerate tap out decks if their power level is similar the drago deck typically just kind of bludgeons the just just kind of frustrates the tap out deck until it can't function so Teachings took over as the dominant control archetype. It was by far the best control deck in block constructed. Mana was awful. You were a base blue deck that splashed enough black to be able to flashback teachings or cast a few uh, ancillary removal spells. Well, fast forward to the printing of Bitter Blossom in Morning Tide. <clears throat> 
Teaching's done real quick. Once the Fairies decks came out and invalidated Teachings as the best draw-go deck, because the Fairies deck could do what the Teachings deck did, interacting with you on your turn, making you interact on your own turn, making you do, you know, making you spend your mana, time-walking you, and then building snowballing advantages. Well, Fairies did that while killing you quickly. Because it was broken. Well, later that summer when we got uh, Shadowmoor, a very innocuous-looking land was printed. That land was Reflecting Pool. And the, the, the seeds were sown for the deck that would become Quick and Toast, as designed and piloted by one Guillaume Wafotapa. This was a deck that sacrificed speed. It was not a fast deck. It did not play a lot of one-drop interaction. It did not play a lot of two-drop interaction. It did, however, play a healthy... It played enough two-drop interaction, I guess... Played a lot of threes, a lot of a lot of threes, a couple of sixes. But for the most part, in curve consideration, you had to consider working in tapped lands. Because the fundamental building block of this deck were the vivid the five vivid lands. They always enter the battlefield tapped with two charge counters on them. And they can either tap for one color or tap for any color by removing a charge counter. But the way those interacted with Reflecting Pool is what made this deck possible. It was a five-color control deck where you just jammed every good magic card you could into one shell. Some of them were re- a lot of them were reactive cards, but you had some powerful th- you had some powerful threats in that deck as well. Uh, the one of the original win conditions was Una, Queen of the Fey. Which, you know, these control decks like to look for mana sinks. And Una, Una does some stuff with some extra mana laying around. Early builds had mixed results because they didn't really have anything obscenely powerful to go over the top with. That all changed with the printing of Cruel Ultimatum in, uh, I believe it was Shards of Alara. Cruel Ultimatum pushed that archetype up to the top tier because cruel ultimatum on the surface looking at raw card advantage numbers for seven mana was a you it's blue blue black 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 red red they discard three cards sacrifice a creature and lose five life you draw three cards return a creature from your graveyard to your hand and gain five life so on a surface level They sacrifice a creature, discard three. That's a four for one. You draw three and return a creature from your graveyard to your hand. That's an eight for one. To say nothing of the the five life difference, sometimes equating to them not getting an extra draw step or you getting an extra draw step because of the life, the life cushion. And that was a card that pushed that deck all the way up. And this was a deck, when I say it played the best cards it could, regardless of what they cost, this was a deck that played Plume Veil at three mana, which was a hybrid blue-white three times. Cryptic Command, Day of Judgment at four mana. So blue, 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 one, or white, white, two. At six mana, it had access to Broodmate Dragon, uh, black, red, green, three. Or Cloud Thresher, which was green, 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 two. And then would cast Cruel Ultimatum on seven for blue, blue, black, 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 red, red. Like, the deck didn't just have good mana. It had perfect mana. As long as you built around the constraints that that mana base required. Well, eventually... The rotation of Cryptic Command, the rotation of the uh, 
the Shadowmoor and Eventide filter lands and reflecting pull from the format, it disappeared. A lot of the things that got you interested in that deck disappeared from the format. Jund became the best deck in standard by a country mile. And there were some Jund Slayers that came along, right? But that didn't stop Jund from winning the first Pro Tour that World Wake was legal in. Despite Patrick Chapin and several others having brought a blue-white control deck to the party. And what happened in the aftermath of that Pro Tour was a thing of beauty. Because we found out real quick just how good Jace the Mind Sculptor and Celestial Colonnade were. But it wasn't until we got Gideon Jura in uh, Rise of the Eldrazi that this deck started to take over standard. And it was interesting because it was such a departure from all the control decks I'd seen to this point. Even during the Juicy Blue, like the Kamigawa Ravnica standard, you still played stuff like Remand. You would play a couple of mana leaks. You would sideboard into additional counter spells. This deck didn't play any in the main deck. There were zero main deck counter spells. You would sideboard into Flash Freeze against green or uh, red decks. That was it. Sideboard into Flash Freeze against green or red decks. Any other matchup? We're just going to do this. Uh, we're going to do this other thing where Jace is the best thing anyone can do at four mana. Gideon and Baneslayer Angel were far and away the best things anyone could do at five mana. And then alongside that, you had a fat stack of board wipes, card draw, and removal. Like spot removal, a little bit of spot removal, cards like Oblivion Ring, cards like uh, Oust, Path to Exile, you know. We had some tools at our disposal. But by and large, you were hinging on whether or not Jace, Gideon, and Baneslayer were good enough to kill your opponent, and nine times out of ten, they were. Baneslayer smacks down one half of the Broodmate Dragon while gaining enough life to offset the damage from the other one and then takes out the other one the next turn if it swings. You know, just really good magic card. Gideon protected Jace. Says, no, 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 no. Everybody's coming at me. You leave him alone. Also, I have eight loyalty, so I'm going to invalidate your entire combat step, then untap, kill all the creatures with Day of Judgment or Martial Coup, and then I'm going to go 6-6 six, six and bring the pain. And this was a viable strategy in large part because it was willing to realize that the counter spells we had were not good enough to play. So instead of trying to answer everything before it hit the board, we just tried to make it not matter. And then later that summer, we ended up getting Sun Titan. Sun Titan links arms real well with cards like Wall of Omens and Spreading Seas and uh, Oblivion Ring. Every time it enters the battlefield or attacks, you bring one of those things back. Play Jace Bellerin because of how the legend rule used to work. You could trump their Jace with your smaller Jace. You spend three mana to <clears throat> you spend three mana to trade with their four mana Jace. They both die. You attack. Sun Titan brings back your three mana Jace. It was a it was an intriguing look at a different version of control. And it eventually gave way to one of the most dominant standard decks of all time once we got access to Scars of Mirrodin, Mirrodin Besieged, and Shards of Alara rotated out of standard. We got Callblade, which built an aggressive package into the Jace Gideon board wipe tap out control shell. Uh, Stoneforge Mystic Squadron Hawks are very unassuming looking threats. Until they're carrying a Sword of Feast and Famine, allowing you to both tap out for threats pre-combat, 
then attack and untap your lands to protect them. You got to be both the tap out and the draw go deck at once. I, I could do an entire episode on the format leading to Callblade and then what happened to the standard format during Callblade. I don't want to do that today. But I can tell you that this deck was so good, so powerful, so popular, that it was still the best deck in standard, or at least the most played deck in standard, after they banned Jason Stoneforge Mystic. Because cards like Batterskull, Squadron Hawk, um, Batterskull, Squadron Hawk, Sword of Feast and Famine, Sword of Body and Mind, Sword of War and Peace, Gideon, Three Mana Jace, Timely Reinforcements. It had everything you want in your tap out control deck. It was still unbelievably good. But that was one of the last standard formats I played in before my, my break from Magic. And five years later, I came back. We tried a few things over the course of the summer. I tried a few things over the winter. At one point, I played a, a version of Jeskai. It was a Jeskai tap-out control deck that was basically a big fat stack of removal card draw and the Sahili Felidar Guard... Uh, yeah, Sahili Rifelador Guardian combo. Because if you're going to tap out for anything, you may as well just win the game. But the one that really kind of brought me back to the roots, so to speak, was were the different looks at Scarab God control decks. And these persisted from the summer of our Devastation's release, when we still had BFC and Shadows Over Innistrad. A Battle for Zendikar Shadows over Innistrad. All the way through until the release of Dominaria. These decks were just pervasive. They were everywhere. And they did it with the, the old tap-out control deck mindset. If you take the single best threat in standard, the Scarab God, 5 mana, 5-5. Five five. If it dies, it returns to your hand during the end phase. can spend mana to reanimate or to, to make token copies of creatures in anyone's graveyard by exiling the original and makes them 4-4. So it's graveyard hate and a mana sink and a powerful threat that closes the game out quickly on its own. Just everything about that card was unreasonably good for that mana cost. And you take that threat and you surround it with tap-out control trappings. Cards like Fatal Push, Moment of Craving, and Braska's Contempt keep you from falling behind. Notably, Fatal Push and Moment of Craving will also put creatures into your opponent's graveyard. The little bit of counter magic you played would do the same. Cards like Supreme Will, um, Sensor, you know, various little little pieces of counter magic would put card put creatures into your opponent's graveyard which once you got once you got scarab god on the board would just turn against them they didn't have the originals but you had the eternals and you were beating them down and you were getting card selection from scarab god every upkeep and it was just so good at one point we even the the build that I played for the longest with the scarab god in it Splashed red in order to play Bolus, Our Devastation, and oh, I can't remember what else. But even just playing enough of a red splash to play Bolus and Our Devastation. Bolus was a seven drop that could just take another thing, and then build up to an ultimate where it just killed your opponent. And then Hour of Devastation would just clean up everything. Creatures even lost Indestructible. Like, ew. So, that was my first recent interpretation to tap out control. But then, with the release of Dominaria, things went back to more of their traditional tap out control roots. And we got the hero we deserved in Blue-White Approach. 
Use Teferi, Hero of Dominaria, and Approach of the Second Sun as your win conditions. And that doesn't sound like a tap-out control deck. I know. Teferi, Hero of Dominaria, under no circumstances, is a classic tap-out control deck win condition. Because it sits there and draws you cards, and then eventually gets to ultimate, and then you start exiling your opponent's board, and then once you have their board exiled, you just... Let the Teferi tuck itself back into your deck, and eventually your opponent decks out and you can't. That doesn't sound like tap-out control. But, Teferi on five, untap, protect him. Uh, clear the board, plus protect him again. Uh, approach of the second sun, gain seven life. Teferi maybe has to tuck a creature. Untap. Searcheress Canta flips. Activate it. Put a removal spell in hand. Put the rest on the bottom. You know, clear the board again. Untap. Activate as Canta and upkeep. Get approach. Kill you. Like... That'll get you there. It's not pretty. It's not elegant. But cards like Cleansing Nova, Fumigate, Seal Away, Ixalan's Binding did a lot of work cleaning up creatures. And then Search for Escanta, notably in that deck, could find everything you planned on killing your opponent with. Some of them would play Gideon of the Trials in their deck, as a pseudo three-drop creature that they could just jam onto the board on three, put an emblem out so your opponent has to attack into it, as opposed to attacking your face. Well, then, each subsequent Gideon you find sort of soft-locks your opponent. And Sir Trescanta, after flipping, could find it. It... It was a deck that looked on paper to be more Drago, but it was very much a tap-out control deck. As frequently as you could, safely, you know, if you weren't just under the gun, you, you were spending turn five to either Cleansing Nova, Fumigator, Teferi. Well, then we fast-forward a little bit more to today because... Decks went all over the place during Ravnica era standard. Worlds 2020. Paulo Vitor Dama de Rosa had the perfect 75 for Worlds 2020. Leveraging a light permission suite, heavy spot removal, and powerful threats. Yes, Shatter the Sky was in the deck. Yes, Absorb, Dovin's Veto, Sinister Sabotage, Negate. Those are all cards the deck, the, the 75 played, Disdainful Stroke, etc. All of those were cards the deck played. But Dream Trawler would just come down and invalidate any creature that had less than 5 power. And would be able to trade any card in Paulo's hand to invalidate a removal spell. That's really powerful. The lifelink on it would also help offset some, some savage beatings you took in combat earlier in the game. Teferi Time Raveler famously has basically invalidated anything that costs three or less, or anything that costs three or more, that doesn't provide immediate value because it's just going to put it back in your hand. Try again next turn. Uh, Archon of Sun's Grace, however, would invalidate entire combat phases out of aggro decks by just putting a ton of lifelinkers on the battlefield. You got to untap with that thing, you omen of the sea, scry two, draw one, make a dude, make a, make a two, two lifelink. Uh, Banishing Light, your creature, make another two, two lifelink. What else we got? 
Bertha Miletus, go get a Plains, make a 2-2 lifeline. Well, now you on the other side of that matchup need a board wipe. Now you've got to be the one clearing the board. I've got a board presence now, and it's going to shut off a lot of the damage you've been doing to me so far. It was a very, very well-tuned, well-designed deck that I look forward to revisiting at some point. Because unlike a lot of the decks that are being played heavily in standard right now, this one survives rotation. The biggest blow to this deck is going to be losing uh, its actual Azorius cards. Teferi Time Raveler, Absorb, and Dovin's Veto. Those are going to be the biggest blows to this archetype. But in exchange, shortly after Worlds, Bant sort of Bant Ramp is the, the name the deck has now, I guess. It evolved from Paulo's World Shell, taking the idea of leveraging cards like Teferi, Elspeth Conquers Death, and Dream Trawler, and saying, why don't we just play more powerful cards instead of playing all these weird synergy things? Let's just play Nissa and Krasis and Growth Spiral and Uro in my Teferi Dream Trawler deck. And now Dream Trawler's not even in there. They're just going to ramp all the way up to Ugin. And then thanks to resurgent mid-range decks that were beating up on some of these aggro shells, uh, Jun Sacrifice notably, Teamer Reclamation did the classic thing that Drago control decks with a better endgame than Tap Out do. It came in, swooped in, and took over the slot as the best deck. Now, granted, Teamer can play a better tap-out game than a lot of the other Drago decks over the course of history. Between cards like Uro, Shark Typhoon, you name it, the, the cards they have access to are endless. They're very, very good. But the looming, omnipresent threat of Expansion Explosion with an active Wilderness Reclamation... There's not a better endgame than that in Standard, and that's why the like the blue-white control decks eventually optimized out of this out of the format. Even though they play the best card against Reclamation and Teferi Time Raveler, the rec decks just have all the right stuff. And that leads me to my last point. I want to talk about looking forward for for tap out control. Because right now is not a good time to play it. I am not going to sugarcoat that at all. The threats are too good in other decks. So being a lean, stripped-down control deck that plays a good amount of, you know, interactive elements, board clears, ways to catch up, and shots in the arm for card advantage, and then a handful of powerful threats to close the game out in a hurry, that's not a good place to be when the other decks that you're trying to control have better threats than you. Hydroid Crisis, Nissa Who Shakes the World, looming ever-present threat of Embercleave out of the red decks. It's not a great time to be trying to build these decks. That hasn't stopped me. I'm still doing it. It's not a good time for it. However, looking forward to post-rotation, when the ramps that when uh, everybody loses their shocklands, and we uh, we move forward with just temples and triomes, along with whatever mana fixing is in Zendikar, Paulo's deck from Worlds starts looking real good. Yes, you have to replace Absorb with Neutralize. Yes, you have to replace Dovin's Veto with Negate probably end up playing some number of Essence Scatter. But you still have Shatter the Sky. You still have Elspeth Conquers Death. You still have Banishing Light. You still have Omen of the Sea. You still have Birth of Miletus. You still have Archon of Sun's Grace. You still have Dream Trawler. You still have Field of Ruin for opponents who get too greedy with their mana bases. There's, there's losses, sure. 
but the Constellation tap-out control deck is still very much viable. And I would love to take that shell and play one to two copies of, the, of uh, Dance of the Mance in it. Dance of the Mance being unbelievably powerful when your deck is going to play a bunch of enchantments anyway. So when you're buying back... Uh, when you're buying back, you know, Dance for X equals 3, and you buy back Omen of the Sea, Banishing Light, Birth of Miletus, make three tokens with Archon, Scry 2, draw 1, exile a thing, go get a Plains. May not sound like it, but that's a lot of advantage. X starts going higher, you get to X equals 5. Bring back Elspeth Conqueror's Death that's already gone off once for massive advantage. Please. That's going to be silly. Maybe it splashes red in order to play Narset of the Ancient Way. That way you've got another powerful Planeswalker to buy back. We've got Teferi Master of Time in Core 2021. Thirst for Meaning becomes more powerful when you play a lot of enchantments. It turns into a draw two that discards the worst enchantment in your hand. Or one that you intend to buy back with Dance of the Mance later. So, blue-white still has all the tools. But the more enticing one, the more interesting one, because it hasn't really been explored very heavily, is looking at a black splash. Instead of blue-white, blue-black. Because black has a really interesting blend of options for the, the aspiring tap-out control player. It's going to lose Thought Erasure, but it maintains Agonizing Remorse. It's going to lose a card like Henry the God Eternals, but it's going to maintain a powerful board clear like Extinction Event. We get to play all the same counter spells, but then we also get to play Drown in the Lock, which is either a counter spell or a removal spell in most of your matchups. Fable Passage going to become one of the most important pillars of mana fixing post rotation. That's a card in their graveyard every time they do it. Uro on turn three is a card in their graveyard. So. Between spot removal, disruption, board wipes, some of the threats available, Lockmere Serpent's really powerful. Even, you know, looking small ball at things like Slither Wisp and Sea Dasher Octopus that can come down and provide slowly, you know, grinding advantages. I really like where Blue Black is at post rotation. It's something I'm really intrigued by. So. That's all I've got for this week, everybody. I hope this has been another good history lesson for everybody. Hope we enjoyed it. Hope we took something from it that we can use moving forward, because that's the goal here. Right? That's that's what we're trying to do. But, again, I hope you enjoyed it. I hope you learned from it. I hope you're ready to, you know, get out. I hope it got you excited to brew, you know. I look forward to doing the next one. But with that in mind, we got to remember that uh, if you want to get in touch with me, tell me how wrong I am, tell me I don't know what I'm talking about, or you know, tell me thanks for the, the history lesson. You can go to Twitter. I'm at HomewardPathMTG. On Facebook, my name is Adam Spain. The Facebook group is the Homeward Pathfinders. If you're perusing the web anyway and you want to stop by and show me some support, uh, patreon.com slash HomewardPathMTG. That's the the easiest way to do that uh that will give you access to the patron pathfinders discord where we ended up settling on this this actual topic this week so among other rewards that are in place and then while you're at it obviously check out our sponsor puremtgo.com they're great they've taken real good care of me and they're one of the largest collections of magic content on the web, you can find everything from the CCMTG network in addition to many, many other fantastic content pieces. And with all that out of the way, 
Uh, let's let's get it pulled up here. It is time for my favorite segment every week. Hashtag. Wants to push the right button here. Technical difficulties on a phone. What is wrong with me? Hashtag. MTG Dad Jokes. And let's see what we got. 25th of June. Did I do that one last week? Yeah, I did. I did that one last week. Shame. I only have one this week. I'm a little sad. And it's going to take a second to pull it up. There it goes. It starts with an article announcement from Christian Calcano. It says, check out my first ever Channel Fireball article where I talk about M21 Draft. To which Rachel Agnes replied... Dang, I, I, she didn't say dang, but I'm, you know, we're a family show here. So dang, I'm going to need a calculator to add up how stoked I am about you writing for Channel Fireball. <laughs> Come on, that was good. Did I do that one last week? Yeah, I did. I did. Anyway, that's all I got for this week. Again, Something to bear in mind before I sign off. It has been a really rough couple of months for the Magic community. It seems like every other day we end up finding out something else about somebody being horrible to each other. Find out something else about Wizards itself being horrible to the people they claim to support. Just remember the words of wisdom that we try to live by here on this show. The Twelfth Doctor brings them every week. When dealing with other people, you never know what someone else is going through. So just remember, never be cruel. Never be cowardly. Remember that hate is always foolish. Love is always wise. Always try to be nice. But never fail to be kind. So go forth. Sling some cardboard. Be kind. And we'll catch you next week. Take care, everyone.